0: So far in this series of conversations, we've spoken to two prominent change makers from opposite ends of the natural capital and biodiversity spectrum. Rachel Lowry from WWF is a conservationist. She spoke about the importance of engaging with business. And Tony Goldner, through his work at the helm of the TNFD, is changing the way companies disclose nature risk. But today, in our third conversation, we're approaching the topic of investing in biodiversity by speaking to Nigel Sharp. He's a farmer but he's also a businessman and a fund manager and over the past two decades he's been a pioneer in the business of biodiversity and that's what we're all about here on the good future podcast i'm your host john treadgold and i'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability the new economy and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact nigel is a pioneer in this space the Tiverton Investment Vehicle has developed a whole range of agricultural projects on land holdings all over Australia, and all with the regeneration of biodiversity at their core. But that's not all. He's seeded the Dragonfly Venture Fund to support early stage climate tech and regen ag startups, and he founded the Odonata Foundation, an environmental charity working to save species from extinction. He's a busy man and he's endlessly interesting to talk to. He has an opinion on everything, and he's always got new ideas for innovative business models and new frontiers to better utilize and conserve our most valuable asset, our environment. Now, before we dive into the episode, I wanna say a big thank you to the sponsor of this series, and that's Green Collar. Green Collar is a developer and innovator of environmental market solutions. They recognize the power of putting a financial value on nature as an incentive to drive sustainable land management cleaning up our waterways and avoiding further loss of biodiversity and animal species. Since launching more than a decade ago, the company has become Australia's largest developer of nature-based carbon credit projects. And they're pushing the market forward with schemes like Reef Credits, which target improved water quality at the Great Barrier Reef. And their latest innovation is Nature Plus, a new form of biodiversity credits that aim to protect and restore ecosystems around the world. They're measuring biodiversity outcomes on the ground with a scientifically rigorous and verifiable methodology that puts a value on natural capital to enable investment in the conservation of high value ecosystems. Reach out to the team at greencollar.com.au to find out more. All right, let's get into today's episode. You can find all the show notes and links on the website at johntreadgold.com. And you can also sign up to the newsletter to get notifications on the latest podcast episodes, as well as all the insights about the evolution of impact investing. And now to the episode, my conversation with Nigel Sharp. Here we go. Nigel, great to have you on the show. Thanks for giving us some time today. Thanks, John. Good to chat with you. Now, look, we've had plenty of time to chat in the past. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. You, you've got a lot of experience in this space and I'm keen to dig into lots of bits and pieces. But to wind back, you grew up on a farm. You've always had a very tangible and, and practical link to the land and to the value of biodiversity. So what drove you to, to shift that view towards business and finance? And tell us about how you've, you've seen this evolution of, of natural capital and biodiversity become a, an investment thematic and almost an asset class. Well,
1: it has been a long story. As I was growing up, the main interest that conservation-focused farmers had was in the soil erosion and salinity And back in the 80s, and that was the start of the Potter Farm Plan and planting trees. To deal with those issues obviously over time we can that that went well it led to land care actually the start of land care which you know was was a really big change from a nature perspective but during that time we've continued to see degradation of the soil seen um, a lot of loss of biodiversity as land clearing has continued so whilst uh, there was some early moves that have continued down that pathway the greater impact has still been mainly in the degradation area so at that point it was government and um and groups like potter foundation that were were looking at it um as as the years went by and it's only been more recently that there's been some mechanisms to help fund native vegetation work that really began in in the early 2000s with the victorian government's vegetation offset uh, mechanisms and then it's evolved there sort of through voluntary interests to assist with remnant vegetation work and some funding towards endangered species in it, you know, from the work we've been doing. But the real acceleration down this pathway has really been the last few years.
0: When the Victorian government brought those schemes in and it came up on your radar, was it a light bulb moment for you? Did it make sense or did it take a bit of convincing to say, all the work you've been doing, hang on, these city folk in the in the offices are trying, to, are trying to tell us how to run our business?
1: Oh, no, it was a great opportunity for us. I'd committed down the pathway of the focus at that point on looking at the endangered and threatened species in Victoria without much funding, so we were relying on other forms of income to support that passion, I guess, at that point. So the fact that we'd focused on remnant vegetation of high importance, so fairly critically endangered habitat it was it was luck at the time that it, it matched the focus of the government to look at protect that vegetation and any clearance of that type of vegetation that was that was about 2004 i think
0: from then to now you said that the last couple of years have, have seen a real acceleration hence this podcast series and and we have tnfd has gone live got big global fund managers who you never would have thought talking about conservation or uh, talking about natural capital, to bring us up to speed on on where you're up to, how you've progressed, can you give us an update on, on the projects, the investment funds, the businesses that, that you're currently involved with?
1: Yeah, sure. So, well, from uh, Mount Rothwell, which was sort of the base where we really started looking at this natural capital uh, recovery work uh, and rejuvenation, we evolved then to try and focus on a farm where we could work with the natural capital and, and have a, an operating farm. We started with the Tiverton farm, which is located down in Western Victoria. And the idea there was to have a sheep farm grazing on native vegetation, grasslands, but crash grazing managed, like historically, it was managed by you know, mobs of kangaroos. Uh, we feral-proof fenced it. The aim was to restore the health of that and run a, a, a strong sheep farming operation. We did that, and then we started reintroducing the mammals that used to exist in that habitat, so eastern bandicoots and more recently eastern quolls. For us, that's sort of the ultimate type of uh, project we're trying to do from an impact perspective so that we can have maintained income, we can have have high-value produce, and we can monitor and watch the revegetation and the biodiversity thrive. On the back of that, in, in the partnership that I set up there was with Harry Youngman, who's got a lot of strong farming background himself and we started a fine wool operation there producing excellent wool and we're getting a premium for that for that product it's, it's not a massive premium but it all, it all helps towards having a, a financial model that's fully funded as a, as a farming biodiversity climate operation so that's probably the goal that we'd like to build on for a bigger picture on the back of that we looked at then saying how do we look at doing a larger farm so tividen's about 1,200 hectares. So we then got investors together and bought a larger property, 5,000 hectares, with a view to master planning it for these type of sustainable farming outcomes, but not just grazing in this instance, we were entering the cropping territory uh, and remnant corridor connection as well. So that led to the setting up the larger fund and focusing on the farming methodologies so that we could produce food, high nutrient density, be addressing climate change through soil carbon sequestration and restoring biodiversity. So it, it got more complicated and more comprehensive in the work that we needed to do. Through that, we worked a lot with moving from synthetic fertilisers to composting to evolving a liquid biofertilizer ourselves so that we could look at plant health, soil carbon, soil health, soil carbon sequestration, and all of the components that go together. So that became... The target is is how we look at scaling that type of practice across the broader farming landscape. Yeah, well, it really sounds
0: like you you built the business as as sort of need and necessity drove it. You bought the land, you created the structures. I mean, more recently, you, you've invested in and, and and taken on control of companies like carbon neutral, you know, the soil companies. There's carbon measurement. How do you see that, that structure of, of building out and buying and
1: acquiring companies to build this system? What's sort of the, the I guess, the goal? Well, it's been an evolution as we, as we work out what's needed. So the, the investment in carbon neutral, we really needed that carbon expertise based with voluntary credits, international credits. We've got the gold standard in carbon neutral and then obviously the Australian Emissions Reduction Fund processes and registration, and there's multiple different projects there. Carbon Neutral is specialising in the REMP, which is the, the tree planting piece. Tiverton had been working down the soil carbon piece. Some of the larger properties, we were looking at the human re- regeneration piece. So we wanted to get a more comprehensive understanding of that and, and create the income streams that could continue to build on farming income. Because the transition of farming is a, a really significant phase. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a two to four year phase and we were looking for the mechanisms that could help us transition farms because we're probably the guinea pig and we want to then be able to help other farmers go through that process. Similarly, we invested into Downforce Technologies, which was a satellite soil carbon measurement technology that came out of Oxford University. So the combination of having a farm to do the work and then all of the expertise so that we can build a model that we can help share across the globe ideally to deliver outcomes that give all farmers confidence to farm for the future of the planet, biodiversity, climate, etc. Well that's right and, and if, your, if your drive,
0: your ambition is to protect nature and biodiversity is there always a business solution? Are there cases where conservation won't necessarily always pay for itself, I guess, at least in the short term?
1: Well, that's absolutely correct. And this is um, the challenge. The ultimate goal for impact investing is to have returns commensurate with you know market returns that aren't focused down that pathway. But some of the areas that we need, but I touched on one there before, is how do we fund a farmer to transition with the risk that's involved? Because if you're, you're, you're switching farming methodologies, you want to minimise that risk for farmers. The, the really hard work around biodiversity-focused recovery, such as native habitat that needs restoring and recovering some of the threatened species that we've got that are really important to the, to the ecosystem, there's not much funding around for those. So we look at projects in four different categories, really. There's the projects that require philanthropic government donations-type support which is really the work that Odonata started doing and has become expert in, because one of the keys there was to work out how to do that type of work much more cost-effectively, and then to share that with landholders and show them how that could fit into a master plan. And so Odonata, sorry, Odonata, that's a not-for-profit, right? Yeah, Odonata is a not-for-profit foundation focused on saving species. We save species is is, is basically the catchphrase for Odonata, and working with many landholders now around the country, focused on different recovery of different threatened species, and that's now moved beyond animals into plants as well, and that we've got multiple First Nations groups that we're working with from that perspective as well. So that end of it is a hard end and hard to fund. Our second category we look at is early learning to develop a business model, but other cases are there may not be a business model until uh, one day there's a biodiversity credit uh, of value or that type of thing that recognises the type of work that I've just explained. And so our fourth model is obviously the Tiverton Farm model, which is where it's a full impactful investment, commensurate market returns, and we can achieve the climate and biodiversity outcomes that we're looking for. Okay. And so talking through, you
0: mentioned categories two and three there, using what impact investors will often call concessional returns, really impact first, maybe willing to see, Financial returns shift up and down, but they really want to focus on that that early nurturing the business model. Coming to their number four, the Tiverton model, what is it that's driving the returns there? What is what is the business model there that gives it that strength?
1: Well, that's very much a full farming operation, but we've been able to design it in the early phases so that we can get the biodiversity outcomes and the soil carbon sequestration outcomes as part of the plan. And a lot is in the master planning of the project to get to that point where we can be confident of the returns that are required. And the other thing is we need to be confident that we're not diminishing the capital value of the property along the way either, because sometimes you're covenanting part of a remnant landscape that's not going to provide you with income going forward, which will actually decrease the potential capital value as a valuer because it doesn't have future potential for agricultural purposes. So you're always looking at the income and the capital appreciation potential of a property or minimising the capital depreciation as part of trying to go with the climate and biodiversity outcome and that was really where our measurement model called the seven c's got established some years ago so that we could be contemplating all of the issues that i've just described yeah you mentioned the seven c's there
0: i'll come to that when we talk um, about impact measurement one of my favorite topics uh, a little bit later on but Sticking with this business model, I imagine carbon credits are, are there um, as part of it. And and it's interesting the way the language now rolls with carbon reduction and biodiversity. And we have maturing carbon credit markets, but biodiversity is slowly coming into the language. I know you worked with Sentient on their Biodiverse Carbon Fund. How How is that integration happening and, and what's the balance with then standalone biodiverse offsets biodiversity offsets
1: so probably we need to look at the international market from that perspective but it's a carbon neutral we've got the gold standard accreditation for a carbon credit and for a gold standard accreditation you're looking at the biodiversity outcome as well as the carbon outcome so wanting to have a broad corridor planting with multi-species back to uh, rebuild an ecosystem And I think at the moment the main market for carbon and the way we look at carbon credits is what is the total picture that we're delivering by establishing a carbon project. So we'd like to see a carbon project that's got very strong biodiversity outcomes. We've got carbon projects as well with First Nations partnerships as well, and we really like those projects, uh, which I can take you through also. From a soil carbon perspective, you know, 50% of The world's biodiversity is in the soil, so rejuvenating our soils is going to do a lot for the broader biodiversity, even if you're maintaining a farming operation there. Farming that way for for soil carbon, you reduce the need for your herbicides and pesticides. The insect populations, invertebrate populations do well, hence it spreads up the the ecosystem chain. So all of these carbon projects can be master-planned to have a maximum effect beyond carbon drawdown. Having said that, Carbon drawdown is probably the, the most important thing that we see at the moment. Um, we've got a continuing uh, escalation of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. We're having these uh, incredibly um, intense climate events these days and so accelerating people to transition to nature-based carbon sequestration projects I think is critical. Well, that's right. They're two
0: closely interlinked. Challenges, biodiversity loss and, and, and climate change, one being a, a, a positive feedback loop of the other. But then you mentioned social impact. And, of course, any action against climate change needs to take into consideration negative and positive impacts, right? So how do you see that? And you mentioned a, a First Nations project you're working on.
1: We've got a pilot project in uh, southwestern Western Australia at Esperance with the Dalarak people and that's involved in regenerative farming or the soil carbon sequestration project and, a, and a, a environmental planting project as a combination. So in that instance, we're looking at transference of knowledge and skills, creation of employment and self-determination outcomes that can sit as a measured outcome as well. Like I mentioned before with any of these projects, we believe it's all in the master planning and what we're trying to achieve in doing so and then doing the financial modelling to support those outcomes. So we'd like to expand that model that so far has been very successful. Very good, very good.
0: And, of course, the challenge is always impact measurement. On the climate side, it's a little bit more quantitative. It's relatively easier to record um, GHG emissions. You move to nature and biodiversity, more complex, a lot more thematic, a lot more elements of, of an ecosystem that you're measuring but of course then you come to the social side really difficult and so you've worked with a lot of impact investors in your time they've, they've been big supporters tell us about some of the the metrics that you use yeah, across this nature and biodiversity thematic to try and help them understand the positive outcomes of, of what's going on
1: a lot of it we're still trying to nut out in the most cost effective way to provide the measurement outcomes with downforce technologies, you know, we're starting to be able to quickly uh, measure the soil health and also habitat changes. And so from a macro picture, that type of technology is fantastic because it's a cost-effective way of, of, of really looking at a large-scale area and saying how are we changing this area. When we get more into the other end of the scale, the threatened species end of the scale, it can be when we started with about bandicoots you know, there was less than 100 left and doing a census and uh, how many different locations and how we're recovering the genetics of those species. And we've, we've rejuvenated the genetics of that species. We've now got probably 2,500 of them in four different locations now. So we can measure those with our own trapping and modelling. And there's a lot of things, as you mentioned, in between there. How do you measure the invertebrate populations? How do you measure individual plant health And and, and to that end, down the plant path. We've got partnerships and we're using labs in Australia and in the US to measure those. Some of the species work, we're going deeper in how we do models and using infrared technologies. In the last couple of years, we started working with the Caesar Group and the ViroDNA, which is basically collecting water samples in a broad number of locations to be able to track and start seeing the changes to the species that are located anywhere. We did a did a 2,000-site project to map Victoria's biodiversity uh, throughout waterways, and that became a really large citizen science project. So there's no simple answer to the measurement. We've been working with Trobe University on the farm natural capital account system so that we can take into account the changes both in the the work that's been done uh, with nature but also the work that's been happening um, on farms because often uh, farms – are only at the beginning of a transition to think down the pathway uh, that we're discussing. So I think this is going to be an ongoing question to be answered. We could write very large papers around every project when you start going into all of the points that I've just outlined. So it's, it's, how, we can, it's how we can demonstrate to investors and others the change in, in a simple format, but I think we need to get heavily involved in the complexities of technology to be able to bring to the fore a really robust way of demonstrating the impact. Yeah, thanks for that. That's really interesting. Is there anything bubbling to the top
0: that investors are interested in or demanding or where you're, I guess, where you're approaching first?
1: Well, I think downforce technology is, is helping us a lot with that because we can really look at a farm and see month to month, year to year changes, both in the soil and, and the native vegetation coverage. So, soil health is a very significant indicator as to the direction of the biodiversity outcome and also by, by being able to look at the satellite imaging on a very regular basis. If you're master planning and, and, and putting corridors back into your farms, you can see those emerging as, as they're fenced or then they are planted and they start growing. So that's a great indicator. Like if I was trying to do something simple with our farms, it's a downforce technology report and then a report on the species work. That we're doing, and some DNA tests in the local waterways around that farm to see what else is changing, and between those we can give a, a very confident summary of change. But what I want to do is keep diving deeper into each of the details around those components. I'm keen to pull it back a bit have a bit more of a macro view
0: a bit more of a market view in your mind what are some benefits what are some opportunities in australia i guess some key assets or sort of investment strategies that that have really good potential in australia specifically we've got a lot of agricultural land that's, that's being really badly looked after we've got deserts we've got a huge coastline mangroves what are some other asset classes investment opportunities that that you think people should have on their radar
1: Beyond the landscape work we're doing at Tiverton, we established Dragonfly Enviro Capital to look at these types of investment opportunities beyond the farm gate or the broader landscape piece. So very much what you're you're alluding to. So businesses like Pacific Biotechnologies, which is a, an algae-based solution, that they're now building a sewage farm, which is going to be managed with the algae solution to reduce the nutrients in the water back to zero before it gets let out into the Great Barrier Reef. So that's going to be great for the mangroves uh, and great for the reef. Sydney Water have been running trials now for nine months with that technology and they're noticing the same. By being able to cost effectively extract the nutrients, water that's released back into the, the streams won't have the nutrient still in the water. So Dragonfly is invested in in that type of technology. Also in aviation biofuel, you know, Jet Zero, They're mm. really another equally important to the agricultural sector in terms of a climate perspective. Water and Carbon is a business that has worked with leachate landfills and now is dealing with PFAS, which is a, you know, a really significant environmental and human health issue. And they've just signed their first contract in the US, which is a, a Brisbane-based Australian company. Dragonfly's focus is everything that can come up with an environmental solution beyond what we're doing in the landscape. So we've got a fantastic CEO there, Adam Tucker, who's looking at and reviewing many, many companies that are, are looking to solve for this nature issue, covering those type of aspects. So I'm really excited about that as the other piece of what we can do. We're also looking at you know, property, for example, in the urban sense and how that's done biodiversity sensitively in design and delivery and from a climate perspective and heat mapping perspective. So the the mandate behind Dragonfly Enviro Capital is to be able to look at all of those types of investments beyond what Tibetan's doing from a landscape.
0: So I've planned this series to try and help people understand this space but i think i've just given people more questions because as we dig in we appreciate the the complexity and and the fact that this is all quite nascent and that, that groups like you are, are really the pioneers and, and building as you go so thank you for all of that super interesting there's lots of lots of elements for people to follow up and just to reiterate that the tibetan ag fund is there Odin Adada is the not-for-profit, and Dragonfly is the venture fund with the tech startup. So, super interesting. Before I let you go, I always ask my guests for a book recommendation. I'm not sure if you're much of a reader. Is there anything you'd recommend for people? Could be about regen ag or, or just something that's on your side table that's a page turner.
1: The book I've been interested in of late is called Wildlife in the Balance, Simon Musto which I think is a really good way of having a look at biodiversity recovery work. So, yeah, Wildlife in the Balance, it's called. It's a great read. It puts it in a, a very readable form for those of us that aren't scientific experts in what's the problem, but also solutions that are emerging and what we need to do to work down that pathway. So, I definitely recommend that. Yeah, I oh, look, it's that storytelling that we need to just reframe it and, and give people the
0: imagination to think of new pathways forward because we can't keep going the way we are. And look, thank you for all of this today, Nigel. You've shared so much. I think a lot of people know your name and have heard about your work. So hopefully I've done it justice to frame what you're working on, but it sounds like you've got, it's just the beginning, lots to go on with.
1: There's a lot to do. There's a lot to learn. We we hope to keep evolving our work and really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, John, so that we can all explore and compare notes and it's a shared journey for a lot of us to come up with solutions and ways forward that give us sustainable behavior change and sustainable prosperity which i think is is sort of the ultimate goal of the whole impact investing community that's it that's it and just one part of a series
0: this conversation today so we've had a couple previously and there's a few more to come so yeah just trying to put the different puzzle pieces together so yeah lots of content out there for people so look i'll leave it there thank you nigel appreciate it Thanks, John. See you later.